The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I'm a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books, I'm the person who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. Sometimes we hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And today, I am joined by a brilliant scholar, my friend, and the author and editor of multiple books, but the one we're going to talk about today is her most famous, best-selling book. <laughs> over 100,000 copies off the presses in people's hands. It's called We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Bettina Love is in the building. How you doing? Ah, thank you so much, Mark, for having me. It's so good to be here. And I'm just honored that you would choose my book. Thank you so much. Nah, you know, we don't... The thing I do with this podcast is I said... I want to pick good books. I don't want this to be like the celebrity stop where people come by with whatever book. I don't want this to be the thing where publishing houses make me talk about a book or bring a guest on. Right. I want to bring about bring out books that matter and mm. writers that matter. And uh, thank you. your book matters. <laughs> so before we start, one of the things we do every week is I talk to people about the coffee they're drinking. This week, I'm actually drinking some fancy stuff. I'm doing a little bit fancy. I've been drinking plain coffee the last few weeks. Today, I'm drinking a banana mocha. So it is oh. a latte, you know, so we got espresso, we got steamed milk, we got uh, some pure cacao, not sweet, and just a little bit of banana syrup. I, I've been not doing sugary drinks for about two years, but I got the motivation uh, when the weather got a little bit cold. You know, black folk overdo it. It dropped to 65, and I'm, I'm suddenly acting like it's the tundra. So I got that. Now, you're not a coffee drinker, right? No, I'm not. But you do tea? Oh, I, I like tea. I like tea. What kind of tea do you like? I'm an Earl Grey, black English type of tea, but I also put way too much sugar in my tea. So it's more of sugar than tea. So I have to let it go sometimes. You put a little bit of tea in your sugar, it sounds like. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> We're going to work on that. That's why they call you got the sugar. That's what, exactly right. <laughs> That's fair. I'm going to send you some Uncle Bobby's tea recipes that will taste great without any sugar in it. Some hibiscus, oh. some other stuff where you don't even have to put sugar in it and it'll still have a nice natural... I would love it. It's going to be dope. It's going to be dope. All right. So I saw something that said that, and I know the number of sales isn't the biggest thing, but 100,000 copies of this book have been sold. That is extraordinary for any writer. I mean, just so y'all know out there, you know, a lot of books, if it sells a thousand copies and for academics, if you sell 500 copies, <laughs> you sell them to your students, you happy for, for trade press writers, for commercial writers. You know, it, you know, a lot of houses are happy if 10,000, 20,000 books get sold. A hundred thousand is a dream. How, did you expect that? Not one bit. Not at all. Never thought it would happen. I just wanted to write a book and I wanted to write a book for teachers and typically books for teachers. You know, they don't move like that either. So I wasn't writing it for everybody. I was writing for teachers. But I hope parents picked it up. I hope community folks picked it up. I hope folks who saw abolition and teaching and the, you know, how that could be seen together picked it up. But I never thought 100,000 copies. I'm so grateful and so humbled and by the support and the love, but never in my wildest dream. 
You know, it's funny you say education books don't sell. As a bookstore owner, I can tell you the education <laughs> shelf, I got a lot of shelves and I only got about two shelves for education books, not because I don't want to sell them, mm-hmm. but because it's just the thing that people often don't buy, particularly everyday people. I'm not sure why, right. but it's an interesting thing. But your book seems to resonate at a lot of levels. One of the things you say in the book or the, the name of the book, we want to do more than survive. You were responding to a certain kind of education conversation, or a certain kind of reform conversation. Can you talk about what you mean when you say we want to do more than survive? Yeah, so you know, what I want to try to do as an educational researcher is try to take the ideas of African-American studies and Black studies and like put them on top of education so folks can look through an African-American studies, Black studies lens and understand the issues that are impacting Black and Brown children. So when I'm talking about we want to do more than survive, I'm pulling on the work of Hartman, who talks about the afterlife of slavery. Mm. I'm pulling on the work of Michael Dumas and folks who talk about, you know, the anti-Blackness, Frank Wilderson, the spectacle of Blackness and death. So I'm pulling on that and I'm saying, hey, all that is happening in education, too. And so Mm. we want to do more to survive as, as Black folks in education. We just don't want to be in these seats every day. We want to thrive. And so I was trying to pull from all those different places to have this conversation around Black death and Black, to be Black, to be in a constant place of survival mode. And so that's where I was trying to get at with the title and that education should be the place where we thrive. If, we, if you can't thrive in education, then how's the medical field and the housing field and the banking field? We're supposed to hold up democracy as the field of education. So I was trying to you know, play with those ideas that are floating out there in African-American studies, but don't really penetrate into the field of education. That's an interesting idea because you're right. So, so much of, of our hopes and dreams as a nation hinge on this idea of education. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the American story, the idea that anybody can make it in America is partly mm-hmm. predicated on being able to get good education. Everybody right. can access it and you become who you want. What has made it challenging for Black people to get the kind of education they need to get free, to be free, to stay free? What is it? I'm really focused in my research on the last 37 years of educational reform. Mm. And that is at this unprecedented thing that comes out in 1983 called a nation at risk. And a nation at risk, in my opinion, really is education Southern strategy. Meaning that we're gonna say, you know, these kids are at risk and our country, nation at risk says, our country is failing. And we are at a point where we are gonna have national decay and a national threat is coming because schools are so bad. And for that, we need choice. We need character education. We need standardized testing. And I argue that that policy started to chart not only you know, racism, but this anti-Blackness that was seeping up that said that Black kids were under, you know, at risk, they're, they're poor, all, the, all these euphemisms for black kids were starting to be said. And so from there you get standardized testing, you get character education, you get grit, you get the uh, proliferation of charter schools, you get Teach for America, all of this starts to come out. And what I'm trying to say is that these policies aren't just policies, they're not race neutral policies. They are inherently racist and anti-black. And for the last Mm. 37 years, We've been having these educational reforms, and they're nothing but inherently anti-racist policies that have been seen as egalitarian, philanthropic reforms. And they're not. They're racist, and they're anti-Black, and it's very nature. 
So that's what I was trying to, you know, tease out throughout the book. The last six months, we've seen a lot of protests in the streets and people talked about police reform and people at some point said, no, police reform is not the way to go. We need to defund. We need to abolish. They said we need to go a step further. You're you're making and you made even before that happened in this book, a similar claim, right, that that education reform is not the answer. You offer abolition and abolitionist teaching as as a as a response to that. What is abolitionist teaching? So what I tried to do is say, hey, the last 35 years of educational reform has not only been part of the prison industrial complex. What I'm trying to argue is that the, the last 35 years of educational reform is part of the carceral state. Mm. So if that is true, the ways in which we've seen people in this country and throughout the, United, out the world try to address living in a carceral state is through abolition. So if we're going to say education is a part of the carceral state, why not use the tools and the methods and the ideas of abolition that are already out there and apply those to education? If we understand that educational reform is racist, anti-Black, and part of the carceral state. So what I wanted to try and say is these are these wonderful ideas that are out there from folks like Dylan Rodriguez, from folks like Angela Davis, uh, Charlene Carruthers, Derricka Parnell, and say, hey, let's take those ideas and apply them to education. Help me understand some of these things that, because there's a lot of books out there these days that give us solutions to these problems or analyze the world that seem fairly reasonable to people. And <laughs> then, and you take up some of them. Like, for let's talk about Grit, for example. Yeah. Grit is, of course, is a book by Angela Duckworth. That, t- talk to me about what Grit is and why it's not the right way to think about how we should think about our students or how we should think about school. Right. So again, Grit comes out after this push for character education after A Nation at Risk. And this idea of grit says, and this is Angela Duckworth's definition of grit, is that if you do something over and over again and you persevere. And I simply asked the question, Black folks have been dealing with racism for 400 years. Isn't that grit? (laughs) I don't understand what's your definition of grit. Right. So it's not to say that Black kids don't need grit or it's not to say that they come to school with grit, but to say that we don't have it at all and that you're going to measure our grit. Like, we built this country in bondage. How are you going to measure my grit? And why is it always about black and brown children when all these educational policies or the positive psychology that comes out of these things, it's always about black and brown children. Y'all never apply these concepts to your children. So they're inherently anti-black and racist and always about our character. It's always about controlling our bodies and politics to respectability that play out within these things like grit and to say that black children need to be gritty as if we don't have it, as if our culture and the way in which we have to be in this world as black people doesn't necessitate grit. Yeah. And it's, it's an odd expectation when I hear people talk about grit and resilience and all these models that almost presume that black folk are always going to be suffering. Right. You know, like, it's, <laughs> it's like, what, what about imagining a world, or as you talk about in the book, uh, a freedom dream, borrowing from Robin Kelly, where the prerequisite for success for black folk doesn't have to be dealing with misery and suffering and violence. Like, can't mm-hmm. we have a world where we don't, where that's not our starting point? We shall overcome should not be every century. <laughs> we, should have, we should have a new anthem in 3000 right <laughs> it seems like you're trying to help us get there uh, with this idea of abolitionist teaching what is abolitionist teaching to help me define a- abolition for you because there's a few elements of it that i found really compelling so for me it's saying that we are not going to reform education 
We're not going to reimagine education. We're going to get at the root of what is creating, establishing, and perpetuating what we call like failing schools. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that it's not children. It is the policies. And so as an abolitionist teacher, we're going to say, what are the policies that are oppressive? The The policies and practices that do harm to black and brown children. And we're not going to reform those policies. We're not going to reimagine those policies. We're going to eliminate those policies. Mm. What I talk about all the time is that in education, we love to manage oppression. We love to manage racism, meaning we got task force. We got committees. Everybody says, let, we know the system is racist. Let's see how well these kids do in that system. Instead of saying, let's take this money and the resources and start to eliminate, for instance, school funding. How do you have all these departments, all these school districts have equity offices? Yeah. Where is the equity? I mean, you have some schools, Mark, where on one side of the street, it is a well, beautiful, manicured school with all the bells and whistles. On the other side of the street, it is a school filled with black and brown bodies dilapidated. And you have equity offices. Why? Eliminate the issues. Stop trying to manage the issues. You have places like in Boston. Boston is 72% black and Latinx. And they have been fighting for ethnic studies. Why are you fighting to learn about yourself? Mm. So these are the policies and practices that we need to stop trying to measure, stop trying to test and eliminate. And what's abolition about that is not only are we going to eliminate these policies and practices, we're going to create alternatives that are more just, more loving, more kind, and that center the lives of black and brown indigenous children. So that's what makes abolition so different is that we're not trying to just reimagine or reform. We're trying to eliminate. Hmm. You said the word love a couple times now. Um, and in the book, you also talk about joy. Mm-hmm. What role do love and joy have in education? So people talk about if you're racist, you need to move to being anti-racist. Okay. What is that for anti-black? If you're anti-black, you need to be what? Pro-black? <laughs> no, I don't think pro-black. Mm. I think you have to be having understand of black joy. Mm. You have to see us, love us, envision us. You have to want us to win all of us and every intersection of us. That's the love and the joy. So I think if we're going to have this antidote, this thing that says if you're anti-Black, what do you need to move to? You need to move to Black joy. Mm. And Black joy is something that's so beautiful. When you see it, it just makes you smile. When you see it, you just, ooh. I mean, it's, it's, it's something you can't bottle. You can't fake black joy. Right. And it's a love for black people and our struggle and our strength and our beauty and our culture and our flaws. That has to be what we are trying to move to because it sees our humanity. Much of the nation's teaching force is white. 90% of the nation's teaching force is white. In urban areas, we see it sometimes at best in the 60s and 70s, even in places that are overwhelmingly black and Latinx. So the vision you have is not just a vision of getting black folk to embrace black joy. You're really talking about white teachers mm-hmm. having a complete reorientation of how they see black people and black life. That's yeah. a hell of a task. And that's why I'm an abolitionist. Because <laughs> an Fair. abolitionist knows this is a 40 year plan. 
Mm. A 60 year plan. I may not see what I'm talking about. And that's fine. I mean, you know, I was reading just oh, maybe two weeks ago. I was just rereading Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. Yeah. And she says, you know, there was a moment where people were like, slavery would never end. Jim Crow would never end. And here we are. Not saying these systems are fixed, but we have to be as creative and as imaginative and freedom dreaming to say that we can create a teacher education system where white teachers and black teachers will see black children and their culture for who they are and why they're beautiful and why they should be loved on. And I think we have to start from that. I'm not going to start with racism. I'm not going to start with all of our trauma and all of our pain. Because I think too often we reinforce the stereotypes in teacher education. You got one class, that one class is your diversity class. And every week they tell you about there's a gap. Oh, there's a word gap. There's poverty. There's this, there's that. And then they go out and say, you know what? These kids are brilliant. Go teach. You haven't shown me that they're brilliant. You haven't shown me that they're beautiful. And so I was like, where's the class called Black Excellence? Where's the class called Black Joy? Like my students, for one of my undergrad classes, their last assignment is to tell me why black and brown children are beautiful and why mm. you should teach them. Who said you should teach my babies? That's their last assignment. I want you to tell me, tell me what black and brown joy is and tell me why you are deserving to teach black and brown children. And just to be clear, uh, Bettina is a teacher educator, so you teach teachers how to teach. I try my best. <laughs> <laughs> What's what's the biggest obstacle in terms of getting people to embrace this idea of abolition, this idea of black joy? What's the biggest challenge, particularly when training or teaching white teachers or, or pre-service teachers how to become teachers? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, there's just not examples. I think one of the biggest challenges, let me say this. I think one of the biggest challenges is that when you are a pre-service teacher, you have your teaching experience that you have to go do. So you have a mentor teacher. And so you spent you know, your last two years with these college professors and they're telling you all of these things about abolition and social justice and transformative education and you're hyped like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you go out for your like practicum experience and you don't see any of it. Right. That's practicum is when you go out into the field right. to actually sort of begin your journey of, of becoming a teacher. And so you have an experience in the classroom working with another teacher teaching. So you go out there and you don't see any social justice stuff. It's like <laughs> people in rows sit down, shut up, writing on the board, worksheets, all the stuff that they said is not progressive. Right. And so you you have to make a decision right then and there. How am I, am I going to teach the way in which I was told is the way to teach or I'm going to teach what's being modeled to me right now? Yeah. And this person signs off if I get to become a teacher. And so I think too often, you know, I always talk about a good teacher has a bag of tricks. And that's a master teacher. You know, I'm a student of Asa Hiller. He talked about being a master teacher. You got this bag of tricks. And I say too often is that first year teachers don't have a really strong bag of tricks because they didn't get anything from a master teacher. Mm. And so you got to see it done. You got to see it. And so I think we don't have that and we don't have a strong support systems for first year, second year teachers. Like you have to go out and find a mentor. That shouldn't be possible. You should be, as soon as you walk into that building, there should be a master teacher who is walking you through how to be, become a master teacher. And so I think one of the failures, particularly of, of teacher education, is that we just don't have lab schools anymore. We don't have schools where professors put their money where their mouth is and teach and show these people how it's done. You know, it's all theoretical and teaching. Yes, there's great theories, but we need to show how these theories can be actually put into practice. 
there are a lot of people right now who, and there are a lot of books about this written by folk like Steve Perry and others who would argue that charter schools are the way to go. That if we could just build more charter schools, we could have models of innovation, that we could challenge the status quo, that we could unlock the stranglehold that people have on public education, the wrong people. Your book takes a little bit of of this up. Why why is that not the right answer? So you take folks like Steve Perry, right? Steve Perry has one school. And because you can't replicate with that, Right. Mm. And so we can have charter schools and chart. And I'm not I'm not someone who's against charter schools. I am against franchise charter schools. And I think charter schools were supposed to be community led, community run. And now they have become a part of corporate America's portfolio. Every, mm. you know, Mark Zuckerberg has his own charter school network. Like every yeah. every celebrity is a part of a charter school because that's where they hide their taxes and hide their money. And so we have to understand that we have to see that charter schools have lost their way. Mm. The innovation and the purpose of charter schools is now gone. It's a, it's a part of corporate America. You've got hedge fund operators, real estate, Bill Gates and all, and all his people swear they know everything best for schools and charter schools part of that portfolio. And so I think we need to get back to tr- stop trying to reinvent and say what is best for public education. And that's not charter or public. That is actually revolutionary ideas of justice and equity in our schools. And we have to get back to the idea of the public being actually for the public. And we, and public has become a dirty word in this country. Oh yeah. You know, nobody, everything has to be private. So we say public schools, I'm not even talking about what we have right now as public schools. I mean, actual public schools where all children, and I'm not talking about because of your zip code, we have to really think deeply about how we revamp this whole educational system. And I, you know, I think there are some really great charter schools, but in my opinion, they all can go. Mm. I'm an abolitionist. So I mean, we want to do this whole, we want to shut this whole thing down and think about the ways in which we can do it over again. And so that means loving black children, protecting black children. I say there's four things to to be an abolitionist that you got to do. You got to love, protect, destroy, and build. Mm. But we have to start loving our kids and then we got to protect them. And then we got to start destroying these schools and these school systems that don't love black and brown children. And so I'm not a charter school person because I know that charter schools, the purpose of charter schools are not there anymore. And the purpose of public schools are not there anymore. Yeah. So until we start to have a real redistribution of wealth and resources to actual public schools, then we're not even doing public education well. Talk to me about white audiences of books on race. You know, in the last year, and as a bookstore owner, I've seen this. After after George Floyd was killed, mm-hmm. uh, there were protests in the streets, but there were also, there was a widespread desire to buy books on race and racism. Mm-hmm. I watched Brittany Cooper's book hit the New York Times list, mm-hmm. Eloquent Rage, for the yes. first time in the midst of this, right? Mm-hmm. I watched books like White Fragility stay at the top of the limit. Robin D'Angelo has made every New York Times list Mm-hmm. for over a year because of this stuff. But certainly it spiked even again during the, the uprisings. I'm watching uh, Ibram Kendi. Ibram has 
Stamped, of course, which you cite in your book, but there's also How to Be an Anti-Racist. There's Anti-Racist Baby. There's the Anti-Racism Journal that just came out. There's a large appetite for books around race and racism, people trying to make sense of all this stuff. My cynical read is that it's easier for white people to read about fixing racism than to actually fix racism. I'd be like, I know y'all buying the books because I'm selling them to y'all. I don't know if y'all read them and I don't know what y'all do after y'all read them. What's your sense of that? I mean, do you feel as if the white audiences that buy your books are actually making change or is, or is reading the book often enough to make them feel like they're sufficiently woke? So Sabrina Slade, she's not a professor. She's more like an organizer. She said something that really struck to me. She said, you know, white folks have become cognitive allies, mm. which means it's all in your head. You've read everything. You know everything. You read all the books. You go to all the book clubs. You don't miss a Zoom. <laughs> you read everything. And that for them is this, you know, awakening to being an ally. And what I talk about in the book is that, you know, allyship is cute, but it doesn't do anything. We need you all to become co-conspirators. And what I try to help white folks understand, and I say it just the way I'm talking to you is the way I'm, I'm, I'm talking to them. I say, listen, white folks can read everything. They can read about African-American culture. They can become scholars in African-American culture. They can yeah. read about Japanese so, so, Some even become African-American scholars. They, African-American they change their, scholars. No, I'm saying they change their whole race. Right. Oh, that's, listen, that's a whole nother That's, a whole nother, that's whole another nother episode. Ooh, that's a lot to unpack. That's a lot to unpack. So they do, I mean, they can do all of that. But then the same folks will tell you, you know what? I just don't understand the Black experience. Mm. I could never. Yes, you could. You could understand the Jewish-American experience. You could understand the Japanese American experience, but you can't understand the African American experience because it implicates you Mm. in a way in which you don't want to be implicated. So reading the books is where you feel comfortable cognitively to be in that cognitive space, but to actually do the work is what they don't want to do. And so I try to explain to white folks, like white privilege is like an ATM card and you got a thousand dollars on it. And I want you to go out there and use your thousand dollars. I want you to spend a hundred on calling out racism. I want you to spend 75 on signing petitions. I want you to spend another 200 going off on your family members and calling them out. Then I want you to go to your job and spend another 500 on looking at the policies and talking about the policies, asking where are the black people in this room? Why am I being paid so much and other folks? I want you to, I want you to take that, your network and say, I'm going to introduce these folks to my network. And by the end of the night, guess what? Your account is empty. But guess what happens the next day with white privilege? You shoot <laughs> right back up at a thousand. Right. <laughs> you right back where you started. So as the kids say, cash out. Mm. Spend it. And the reason you should spend it is because you didn't earn it. Mm. So why not spend it? So I try to talk to white folks like white privilege is it's money. It's actual capital that you have. And I'm asking you to spend it for somebody else's freedom, for somebody else's justice for somebody else's humanity, for rights, for citizenship. And I, when I say that, but I'm also talking about men. I want you to spend that, your privilege too. Christians, spend that privilege too. Straight folks, spend your privilege too. Like we all have privilege in particular type of ways. And even black folks, we don't like to talk about it, but we got privilege. And so how do we use our privilege for other people and stop just having it being cognitive and reading about it? It's about becoming a co-conspirator and start to do the work and we have to ask white people and be very clear with ourselves. Why would they shut this down? Why would I eliminate a system that benefits me? 
Like we're asking them to do it. Not, this is not only a heavy lift. I'm asking you to disrupt your very idea of self. That kind of request, mm -hmm. that kind of freedom dream requires at least a little bit of hope or faith in the capacity of white people to be better against all historical evidence to the mm -hmm. contrary. What gives you hope? What gives me hope right now is black women and black queer folks. They mm. give me hope. Why? Because black queer folks particularly show us a radical type of love and hope. They really do. Black queer folks who are at the center of creating new worlds, being marginalized in so many different ways and still fighting for all black people, not just queer black folks, black women fighting for black men and black queer folks. I mean, when you see the organizers around the country right now, many of them are black queer women. I mean, black feminism, trying to be radically inclusive and thinking about what justice means and understanding that when black women get free, everybody get free. So for me, I'm just inspired by the way in which black women, women of color, and how queer folks, particularly black queer folks, keep loving, keep living, keep being inspired, and keep asking and demanding the best of everybody to love us. And if you love black queer folk and see us for our humanity, you know, that opens up spaces for you to see other folks for their humanity and freedom dream. So I'm always inspired by black queer folks and the way we love and the way we show kindness and the way we show gratitude and the way we show justice work. You are now an author. That is a, <laughs> no, nah, it's real. Though. You are an author. I mean, that is a, that is an objective fact, right? That because you have published a book, you are an author. That doesn't necessarily make you a writer. Do you identify as a writer? I would say I identify more with a writer as a writer than an author. Why? Because I love to write. Mm. I see writing as a puzzle. And I like, it gives me that same high as being a basketball player. Right. To see, you know, if I can write a, a, a chapter, I'm like, yo, that's like a 40 point. That's like a 40 game right there. Like, I'm, so, I'm so, 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 so for those that don't know, Bettina Love, before she was a brilliant scholar, was a beast on the basketball court. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> you, you, you played at University of Pitt and at Rochester, right? I'm born, yep, born and raised in Rochester and I'm at University of Pittsburgh. Yep. Oh, my God. It's Division one basketball player, prolific score, prefers to shoot rather than pass. We'll talk about that on another episode. Um, <laughs> but that actually, in, in some ways for me, is part of the, the interesting story of you. Were you a writer before you were an athlete? Were you an athlete and a writer? Or did writing come afterward? Never. As a, I was a ball player. I was one of those kids that didn't know what D1 meant, but I said I was going D1. <laughs> like, I, just a lot of ball players, New York style. You know, everybody talked junk. So I'm, I'm going D1. I had no clue what the, that meant Division One. I. I just knew that's what everybody said, that you were going D1. I didn't take school seriously. And um, when I got to University of Pittsburgh, I transferred there from Old Dominion. And when I got there, the coach said, you're a student athlete and you're going to be a student athlete. And I was like, well, okay, whatever. And we had eight hours of study hall that you had to get. Each player had to get eight hours of study hall a week. And if you missed by a minute, it was a mile, cumulative. So you did about 10 hours because you ain't want no smoke. You ain't want nobody, <laughs> you ain't want no student worker messing up your hours. And I just started reading and reading. And really, I took my first African-American studies class. And after mm. that, I was a reader. Before I was a writer, I was a reader. What were you reading? 
when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, that changed everything. Wow. That changed everything for me. And I just started like just reading anything I could. And then I wasn't a writer yet. I wasn't even thinking about writing. I don't know who the hell thought I could get into a PhD program and why I would, I don't even know why I would think. Yeah, how, I, I was going to say, how did that happen? So you go from <laughs> not, not thinking about school at all. You were a student athlete focused on the athlete. Then you started reading, you become a reader and somewhere from that end of college career, you decide I'm going to apply to a PhD program. So really interesting story. I transfer. So when you transfer, you got a year to, you got a year to sit out. So I graduated in four years, mm. but I had another year to play. So my coach said at this time, which was a life-changing experience, she said, get your master's. I said, okay, whatever. Said, I'm what here. <laughs> I'm like, I'm here. Right? I had no clue. She said, get your master's. What do you want to do? I said, well, I think I'm good with kids. She said, won't you become a teacher? I said, okay. So I apply. I got like a 2.7, 2.8. I applied. I get into a master's program in elementary education, University of Pittsburgh. The last semester of that program, I wasn't playing basketball anymore, but they gave me a scholarship. And I had to meet with two professors every week. They just hooked me up with two professors who love women basketball players. They come to all the games. You know, you know, you know how, yeah. you know how you know, we finagle stuff. And these two professors would tell me to read something every week. And I would come to their office and talk the purity shit about it. Mm-hmm. I would rip it up in my mind. We would talk. We would have a good time. Bettina, what do you think about this? Bettina, what do you think about this? You read this. You read that. I'm just going and going. At. So at the end, they said, you know what? You should be a college professor. Wow. I said, why? Why would I do that? It's like, you love to talk shit. <laughs> and you're critical of everything. I said, well, what you got to do? Tell me what you got to do. He said, well, what you been doing? I said, well, how, you know, when do you work? Now we come in two, three days a week, but you're really at home just reading and writing. I said, so somebody's going to pay me to read and write? Yeah. You know, I went off you to teach about two to three years, but I kept that in the back of my mind. And then I decided to apply to a PhD program. I called them up. They wrote me letters of recommendation. And that was it. And then from there, I had to figure out how to write. And that was a hard process. And what I learned, somebody gave me the best advice. They said, you love to read. Stop reading for content and read for grammar. Mm. For style. And that was the biggest change. Because I can, I can pick it up. You just, just tell me where to go. I can pick it up. I went to city schools. You know, my parents were working class parents. You know, we, I just didn't have any guidance in that particular type of way of writing. But as soon as somebody told me that, stop just reading and read for style, read for grammar, read for punctuation. Now, you know, and I became fascinated. Like, why would they put a semicolon there? Why did they put that comma there? And I just, I picked it up. And that's how I became a writer. You know, a lot of times in, in the church, they say you preach like somebody else before you preach like yourself. Mm-hmm. I find that when you learn to write, particularly as a scholar, first you write like other people before you find your own voice. Who were some of the voices that were in your head when you first started writing? A uh, professor by the name of Jonathan Gales, mm-hmm. uh, out of Georgia State, Asa Hillard. I was a big fan of Asa Hillard. Um, Asa Hillard, uh, by the way, for those who don't know, he was, he was a brilliant scholar from Georgia State. He's passed away oh, about a decade ago. Uh, yeah. One of the leading African-centered scholars, mm-hmm. a prolific writer, also was known for traveling uh, and taking large groups of people to the continent of Africa, Egypt in particular. And he's kind of the intellectual leader and mentor, rather, of, of so many black scholars of the 80s and 90s, especially in our generation of the 2000s. Yeah. So may he rest in peace always. Who, anybody else? I'm still a big Bell Hooks fan. You know, mm. Bell Hooks only got citations. Like, how you write without citations? <laughs> and then, you know, I would say, you know, I play catch up. It's with the James Baldwins, with the Audre Lords, 
with the Tony Morrisons, with the Alice Walkers. Like I was playing catch up with those things. But I would say that what made the biggest impact on me really was science fiction. Really? I read Kindred for the first time. Ooh, Octavia Butler. I was done. When I read, I read every, I probably, I don't know when I stopped reading, but The Coldest Winter, I probably read seven or eight times. Like I would just walk around reading that book over and over again. Then when it came midnight, I read that over again. No disrespect, I read that over again. Uh, oh, my, I, like those type of books. Those, uh, those are, by the way, those are Sister Soldier. I like to shout oh, out all the authors for the book. You can grab yeah. them, by the way, at uh, uh, bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's. But uh, Bettina's talking about uh, Sister Soldier's books, of course, Coldest Winter Ever, the, the, the Midnight series, which is based on one of the characters in the book, and, of course, mm-hmm. her book of nonfiction, No Disrespect. And she has a new book, by the way, coming out yep. spring 2021, and we're going to have her here at Coffee and Books to talk oh, about yeah. her whole her career. So make sure y'all listen, listen out for that one. I read everything. And, you know, Martha Southgate, I started reading Martha Southgate, who wrote The Fall of Rome and Third Girl from the Left. Oh, I just got, I just went in to fiction in a particular type of way. What does fiction give you as a writer, as a nonfiction writer? So I think fiction for me gives me the same thing that comedy gives me. Like if I didn't do a, if I didn't do a dissertation on hip hop, I would have done a dissertation on Richard Pryor. I'm a huge Richard Pryor fan. And I think fiction and comedy can say things in a way that scholarly writing just can't. We use too many words. We try to impress each other. And we, we get caught up where, you know, Richard Pryor, you know, Richard Pryor says, you know, you know why black men hold their stuff all the time? That's all they got left. That's it. I mean, that's like <laughs> the biggest critical race theory analysis that you, you don't need nothing else after that. Right, right, right. I'm, I'm going to spend, I'm going to spend 30 pages trying to write what that, what that was just there. Mm. Fiction allows you to see a world that you can't write about yet, but that's the world you need to write about. Oh, wow. And so that's why I'm like, oh, they, that's possible. Fiction lets you see what's possible. And then from, as me, as a writer, I say, okay, if that's what's possible through fiction and speculative fiction, then how do I try to apply that to right now and mm-hmm. say, this is possible. I've, I've read it. I've, I've, I've seen it. And so that's why I love comedy and that's why I love fiction. I, I, you know, I take, I take those very seriously as a writer. Like there's a podcast called The Read. Yes. Like I, I wanted my book to be The Read. Mm. I wanted it to read people for filth. And I still wanted you to see the beauty of us. Wow. And I think that comes through in, in your work. Talk to me about your writing practice. Do you write every day? When I was writing the book, I, wrote, I write every day. I don't, I don't do it anymore, but I would say the 18, 20 months that I, I, I write every day and I would take my computer with me. Like if I could just get five minutes, sometimes it's only five minutes, I'll write for five minutes. Like if I have something that I need to write and this is where I probably won't be able to write another book for a while because I have two children and a wife and they don't really want to see this process again. <laughs> <laughs> when I, if I have a deadline and I'm, and I'm working towards a deadline, there's nothing else that matters. Mm. If I can get a full eight hours in of just writing. And so what I love to do is drop my kids off at work, go to the gym, and then I'll come home and I'll turn all the heat off because I'm cheap in the house and I'll have my heater in my office. So the whole house is cold. So you really can't leave. And I'm just stuck in my office with the heater on and I'll just write. Wow. That is both scary and impressive. Uh (laughs) I love it. And cheap. Do you share your writing with other people? No. No drafts? You wait until the whole thing is done? 
Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I may. What I'll do is, I'll call people, and they'll be like, "Yo, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this." But I did have an amazing, amazing woman. Her name is Asada, and she came by my house once a week, and we talked about the book. That's the only only time I've ever done this with my writing is with her. And I met her through another activist. And I said, you know what? I want a young person to just sit with me and read chapters of this book sometimes. And we found, she was like, okay, I know somebody who would love to do it. She was young. She's an activist, dope scholar. She was working on her master's and she would come by the house once a week and we would just read. And she'd be like, yo, you're not going hard enough. Nope. That's whack. That's, and I loved it. I loved it. Wow. That's the first time I've ever did that in my writing. It, it really, really helped because you're trying to talk about these issues that are happening and evolving right now. I mean, as you know, as, a, as the stuff that you write about. And so sometimes you don't want to miss the mark or sometimes you want to say it. You know, I always say, and Toni Morrison talks about this, you can't write when you got the white man on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. You just can't write. And so sometimes you don't even know he's on your shoulder. And that was her job. Like, tell me if he's on my shoulder right now talking to me. Like, tell me, because I want to know, because I don't want, you can't write anything new, afraid of what white folks are going to say. But we've been trained as black people and as writers and as thinkers and scholars in the academy, you know, to be so concerned about a white audience. And that's why the title of the book is that. That's why there's a little black boy on top of it. I wanted everything. And I said, you know, if white folks pick this book up, that's great. If they don't, that's okay. I didn't write for them. I wrote it for us. You wrote it for us. That That is... I think one of the most simple yet powerful and necessary statements that I've heard in a long time. You know, so many people are writing for awards. They're writing for white audiences because you can't sell six figure books in white people. It's like hip hop. You can't sell. You can't go platinum without white people buying it. Right. It ain't a million black people going to the store buying it. We might we might hear it. We might copy it. We might download it. But we ain't buying it. If 100,000 people buy your book, it's because a lot of white people are reading it. And it's one thing to say, I don't mind them reading it. It's one thing to say, I want them to read. It's another thing to say that they are my primary target politically, emotionally, spiritually. That's a different thing because my cynical read is that now there's a, there's a cottage industry of folk who write books for liberal white people mm-hmm. to feel good about themselves yep. and to kind of perform a certain kind of black radical politics that's not really radical. That allows people to get paid, get attention, get speaking engagements, but not really do the, the loving justice work that we need. That's just me. I, you ain't got to co-sign that or disagree, but I see a I lot of it. Sign. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here's something you're not going to co-sign. It's a game that I make all of my guests play. Let's do it. It brings me great joy and tortures them. <laughs> this is my type of game. Okay. It's called buy it, borrow it, or burn it. Ooh, buy it, borrow it. Okay. I'm going to give you three books. Ah. One you can buy. Ooh. One you borrow, <laughs> the other you burn. Okay. You ready? I don't know. Yes. Here are the three books. Bell Hooks, Teaching to Transgress. Oh, my God. Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow. Now, why are you doing this? And Gloria Ladson Billings, The Dream Keeper, Successful Teachers of African-American Children. Why would you do that? <laughs> This is this is the best part of the whole show. So one you can buy, one you can borrow, and one you burn. And of course, caveat, just for everybody out there, we love books. We love all these authors. We love all these books. And we don't want any books burned. We want them all read. And we prefer if you read them from bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's. But we just want you to read all of them. However, at this moment, the game is the game. 
Man, your new name, Rude Rudy. <laughs> um, I love it. Okay. All right. Let me let me just think deeply about this. Okay. I don't have ideas without teaching to transgress. Like I, I I'm not a person. I don't have so. Mm, it's getting interesting. Okay. I'm going to borrow Michelle Alexander. Okay. I'm going to buy teaching to transgress. And I know you're from Philly. And I know she's from Philly. Philly is grimy. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to burn uh, Glory Lassen Billings. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got we got that on tape, guys. Matita Love is burning the Dream Keepers. <laughs> I can say why. So walk me through it. So you said teaching to transgress by bell hooks is like a foundational text for you. It helps give you your intellectual and teacherly identity. Is that fair to say? Yes. Like that book is foundational to who I think I want to be or even what we want to do more than survive. Like I want it to be all honesty. I wanted to write like the second edition to that. Right. right. That was really what I was going for, to write the second edition of Teaching Transgressors, write the second edition of Pedagogy of the Press. That's what I was really like trying to, in my head, when that ego come in, that's what I wanted this book to be. Right. That's why I can't depart from that. Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, I mean, as an abolitionist, just gave me language, mm. a framing of how to see what was going on, how to understand what a carceral state is, right? This, thing's come, this thing come out in, what, 2009, 2010? Right. So I'm learning at that time. I didn't even know what abolition was, but the new Jim Crow gave me language to think about. We live in a carceral state. I didn't know what that was before the new Jim Crow. Mm. I'd heard about it. I've read our prison obsolete, which, you know, came out. But I don't know. The new Jim Crow just did something different for my spirit and the way it hit at that time. And there's critiques of that that could be made about not including women and all of that stuff. But it hit me in a different way. Yeah. So the reason I got to burn dream keepers is that I just feel like dream keepers, even though one of her most astonishing, amazing, the wonderful book, wonderful book is that I, I can't teach the transgress is why we get that book too. Gotcha. And look, it's, a, it's one of them things where, you know, to use the basketball metaphor, if I say, you know, Kareem will and MJ, mm-hmm. somebody got to go. You yeah. know what I mean? Anybody who got to go, somebody can make an argument for the other one. I mean, and in my field, I mean, Gloria Lassen Billings is the GOAT. Without a question. Without a question. And Dreamkeepers is one of the most important books that really sets a foundation for understanding culturally relevant education, culturally relevant uh, instruction. And looking at models of successful teachers of Black children, I mean, it really is a staple. It's a foundational book. Uh, you can't teach Black children effectively without taking and encountering the work of Gloria Ladson Billings. So there is no diss here. She's from Philly. I wouldn't have did that to my girl, Gloria. Gloria, if you're listening, I wouldn't have did that to you. That's Bettina Love all by herself. I'm going to send her a note. <laughs> but it had to happen. It had to happen. But no, seriously, thank you for your contribution to this tradition. There's, there will be a generation of educators who are coming up right now who will have the same conversation about your work, who cannot imagine a free future and a, certainly a, a, a free educational future uh, without taking seriously your work, your ideas, your passion, and your vision. So thank you for the writing. And how can people get a hold of you? You're on social media, right? Yes, I'm on all the socials. So Twitter, it is Love Soul Power. Instagram, it is also Love Soul Power. So please come through, check us out. All right, and you also have the Abolitionist Teaching Network that you want people to check out too, right? 
Yes, please check out the Abolish Teacher Network. Our job is to help teachers become abolitionists. So we provide trainings, we provide workshops, and we're also going to provide actual activists in communities for teachers to work with, to learn how to be an activist, to learn how to use direct action in their schools, to get rid of policies that are harmful and hurtful to black and brown children. So you go to ATN underscore 1863, and that's us on Twitter. That's us on Instagram. Please follow us. Go to our website, abolitionistteaching.org. And that's the work that we do. So please check us out, ATN. That's it. Y'all heard it, y'all. <laughs> and thank you for hanging out on Coffee and Books. Uh, hey, listen, I love what you do, Mark. But more importantly, I love you as a person. I thank you for always putting Black voices and Black folks on and Black women. And mm. so I'm just, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm grateful that the book did what it did. And to be in conversation with you about what's real and what's important is just always an honor. So thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate it. All right, I'm gonna see you again soon when that next book come out. <laughs> when, when, they, when the family lets you. <laughs> when my wife let me get back to that thing, we, we, we'll see. We'll see. I said my kids are in high school. You know what? I, I'm gonna check with her. I'm gonna call her. Call Chelsea. <laughs> I'm gonna call Chelsea and be like, yo, when can we do another book? I'm gonna just book everything through her. <laughs> I'm waiting till the kids in high school when you become corny. <laughs> Fair. All right. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. That's Coffee, A-N-D, Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that I've been discussing here at bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's, or you can go straight to unclebobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com.